Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 213 being recorded on Thursday, March 19th. 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, one of our most popular annual traditions uh, now, um, second only to our annual predictions, is when we have our friend Casey Lobaugh on from Deloitte. Uh, and he has historically been able to share with us some really cool insights, uh, what's going on with retail and consumer behavior. My personal favorite, and I talk about this uh, all the time in my pitches, is the bifurcation, the, the difference between the convenience-oriented consumer and the value-oriented consumer. Uh, so that's a old chestnut for me, so I'm really excited to have Casey back on the show. Uh, tonight's an extra special Casey appearance. Uh, first of all, he canceled his fancy Australian vacation to be on the show, so we appreciate him doing that. Um, and then second of all, he was set to reveal some pretty interesting new research around the Shop Talk conference, but uh, that was uh, moved due to this pandemic thing that we're dealing with. Um, so uh, we twisted his arm and got Casey to to agree to reveal this research on our show tonight. So we're really excited. Welcome back, Casey. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Yep, and um, you you have a, a very interesting title. So uh, let me get see if I can nail this. Casey is Chief Retail Innovation Officer and a Principal for the Retail and Consumer Products Practice at Deloitte. Uh, and uh, you know that's a pretty wordy title, and it makes soup Jason super jealous because he's tried to jam as many words in there, and I think he's only got a quarter of what you have. That's that's the correct title this week. Who knows what it'll be next week. Yeah. Uh, and for the record, of all the things I'm jealous of about you, Casey, that your title isn't even in the top 10. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I'm plenty, plenty jealous of you for uh, all the things that you do as well. Uh, that, yeah, I, I don't know what those could be, but I'm, <laughs> I appreciate the praise no, and accept the praise nonetheless. I'm, uh, I'm starting to feel like the awkward third wheel over here. Yeah, which <laughs> I'll, uh, because you are. I'll go on mute while you guys uh, do whatever it is you do. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, but uh, Jason, Jason, I, I, I really, really think highly of you. And Scott, you're here as well. <laughs> Thanks, Casey. <laughs> uh, Casey, I share uh, Scott's enthusiasm about having you on the show because I desperately need Scott to get a new chestnut. So I feel like <laughs> right. he's ridden your last chestnut for like several years and we got to get him some new material. Um, I was hoping he wouldn't bring up our annual prediction show, though, because uh, spoiler alert, later in the show, you're going to totally debunk it. Oh, right. Right. We're uh, going to talk about some of the research we've done. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that being said, um, I know you've, you've been on the show a number of times. So our, our most loyal listeners are, are uh, pretty familiar with your background by now. Um, but as you may know, uh, we have a massive new audience that's growing all the time. Uh, so can you kind of give us the, the highlights of your career and, and, uh, uh, what all those words in your title mean at Deloitte? Oh, I'm happy to do that. So, uh, and I, I, I think I'm losing count now, but I've been with Deloitte in our retail practice now. I think it's going on 20, 23 or 24 years. 
Uh, and in that capacity, really during that time, I've, I've served you know, the vast majority of the world's largest retailers, um, mostly you know, helping those retailers sort of grapple with, with whatever was on the horizon. So you know, early on in my career, I was helping retailers with um, you know, moving online. So I did a lot of work with just the, the dot-com portion of retailers you know, early on. Then I did a lot of work around, uh, uh, you know, omni-channel and how the channels come together, how we need to think about inventory differently. Uh, and, and these days, I'm really thinking a lot about where retail goes next. You know, how do we pay attention to the signs and how do we read those signs and how do we help our clients sort of navigate through that? So that's really the, the quick flyby of, of my career with Deloitte. Cool. So uh, we covered the pandemic uh, last week, so don't want to go back into that. And uh, frankly, we think our job is to distract people from from all this stuff going on. Um, but you know, one thing I think we all agree is that this this kind of crisis has created dramatically increased the recession that will will face will, will face a recession here. Um, Part of the research you guys have out there, uh, one segment is uh, this is kind of uh, I guess pretty good prediction. You had said that there's probably a recession on the horizon. And then you guys were talking about what that could mean for consumer behavior, retailers, consumer product goods. Let, let's dive into that. Give us give us some highlights of that research. Yeah, sure thing. Now, first of all, this, this research at this point is probably about eight months old. Uh, and about eight months, nine months ago, you know, of course, if you're around the industry long enough, you've seen you know, the economic cycles, about eight or nine months ago, there were signs that started to say that the economy was starting to weaken. And so we had gotten organized around that and done a piece that we call, are you ready for the next consumer recession? And the signs that we were seeing at the time were, you know, several. First of all, you know, we know that the U.S. has faced a recession every, on average, about 6.1 years, and it had been nearly 10 years since the last recession. So that in and of itself led us to believe that, you know, at some point we would be facing a downturn in the economy. But more importantly, and probably more ominously, uh, the, the yield curve actually not only flattened, but then inverted. And for, you know, those, those of us that sort of follow economics and, um, you know, think about those things, the yield curve is really where, you know, short-term interest rates, you know, are inverted with, with long-term interest rates. And it's, it's known as sort of the number one predictor of a recession, though it's not, um, it's not completely foolproof. I think they say it, it predicted nine of the last seven, the inversion of the yield curve predicted nine of the last seven uh, economic downturns. So we saw that occur, you know, roughly a year ago. We also saw tightening monetary policy. We saw rising asset prices and really ultra low unemployment, um, you know, which, which can and did and was starting to result in, in rising wages and inflationary pressure, though the inflationary pressure really hadn't appeared to the extent that we thought it was going to. But those were just the ominous clouds. Um, and, and of course, you know, one of the things I say about this is that this is like, um, to use an analogy, it's like, um, you know, California comes out and says, look, uh, we don't want you burning bonfires because it, it's, it's really windy and it's really dry and conditions are ripe for, for economic um, downturn. And so really that, the, the clouds that I'm talking about, these ominous clouds, were really those signs that said, we're not sure what the spark will be, but we do know that the conditions really are starting to set themselves up for, for this downturn. And by the way, you know, any, any spark that you've ever seen 
whether it was 9-11 or any other, you know, economic uh, uh, event that's occurred, uh, you know, oftentimes you can look at that and say, boy, that was, you know, how would you have predicted that that would have been the spark that really pushed us into, you know, in, into whatever uh, economic position we get pushed into. Um, so, you know, we weren't trying to predict what the spark was. We were just saying that the conditions were starting to get ripe. Um, and there's a there's a quote that our our I, I work closely with Danny Bachman, who's our Deloitte U.S. economic forecaster, and he's got a quote that I like. He says, "I can predict with 100% accuracy that the U.S. economy will face another recession." And then in small print, he would say, "I just can't predict when." So we kind of knew, you know, something was coming. We knew that the potential was out there, but of course, we're, we're, we weren't even attempting to predict what that was. Um, so then we said, okay, if, you know, knowing that that's the case, um, let's look at previous recessions specific to retail and consumer products and ask ourselves, you know, what can we learn from those? So we looked at the last two recessions, the dot-com burst, and then of course, the great recession in 2008. And when you look at those recessions and you look at the, 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 the market impact, um, the, the impact and the recession themselves were, were different, right? Uh, the cause of dot-com uh, burst was overvalued tech stocks, and then the Great Recession was the housing market crash. Uh, if you looked at corporate profits, you saw two very different recessions as well. Dot-com burst, corporate profits dropped only by 0.2%, and meanwhile, during the Great Recession, they dropped by 13.5%. And the same on wages and salaries, the impacts were very different as well, the differences were in the labor market. So we don't know exactly how the next recession will play itself out, but when it happens, um, it'll likely have a significant impact on the consumer and the consumer companies. That, that's what we, we sort of highlighted. So then we said, okay, well, if those things are different, you know, were there things that were um, common uh, were there things that we can actually pull away from those? And, and these actually become really important as we think about our situation today. But we came up with three things that became very clear uh, happened. The first was the growth in digital uh, and e-commerce. Now, of course, we knew that e-commerce was growing. But when you look at the numbers, and you look at it comparatively to brick and mortar. We actually saw in both cases an acceleration of e-commerce during the period of economic downturn. Now, overall, like retail, you know, showed weakness, but when you pulled it apart, what you actually saw was acceleration of, of e-commerce. Um, in addition to that, what we saw was the rise of new competitive entrants. Now, this is really interesting because, you know, something was happening at the same time, uh, you know, barriers to entry were coming down because technology was changing, but also capital was becoming increasingly cheap. Right as as the Fed moved to increase liquidity, uh, interest rates came down. What we actually found was there is this this combination of barriers to entry falling and and available cash was actually allowing new competitors to in, enter the market at increasing rates during and right after the economic downturn. This included not only um, you know new small digital native startups, but we also saw European retailers you know, aggressively accelerating their growth into the U.S. marketplace. We also saw uh, consumer products accelerating their direct-to-consumer efforts. So all those things together were this, this new competitive entrance that, that really were fueled during the downturns. And then finally, and this is sort of relates to the bifurcation that you talked about, Scott, we saw the rise of discount players. Uh, consumers really materially shifted to the discount players 
uh, and, and they were experiencing average growth rates of about 6%, while the rest of the retail industry was declining about 5%, in particular during the Great Recession. And after the Great Recession, discount maintained that growth rate um, that they had you know, obtained during the downturn. So the consumer learned of a new behavior. Consumer found a new channel. Of course, that channel ended up with uh, a flood of product um, you know, of quality because the the traditional retailers were really trying to liquidate products, so it really sort of added to the to the mix. So if you think about those things, as we said here today, you have to ask yourselves, you know, how will those play themselves out? You know, do we believe that we'll see an acceleration of digital and e-commerce? Will we see uh, discount and and off price, um, you know, accelerate as well? In addition to this we see something happen with the consumer. Uh, the consumer base fundamentally changed due to the uneven economic recovery. It happened after the first downturn of the dot-com uh, bubble bursting, and also happened after the 2008 recession. If you looked at discretionary income changes during the dot-com cycle and the Great Re Recession cycle, they were very uneven. So for example, let's talk about the Great Recession. From 2007 to 2017, if you were in the low income bracket, you actually ended up decreasing your discretionary income by $3,000. At the same time, if you're in the high income bracket, up $18,000. So it was real uneven recovery. And largely that came from, uh, that came from, well, many facets, but one facet was availability of, of, of capital. So liquidity flooded to the market, if you had good credit ratings, you could access capital at very low interest rates. Uh, the problem is at the same time that liquidity became available because the housing bubble you know, led to the downturn, we actually raised uh, the, the regulations and raised the criteria by which we would give people loans. So if you were in the high enough income bracket, you could easily secure a very low interest rate loan. The lower off you were, the less accessible that capital was to you. So coming out of all of that, then what was interesting, this is, a, this is something we highlighted this year ago, was this idea that um, if you looked at the industry of retail, there was something going on, you know, even a year ago that was really a little interesting and maybe a little disturbing. And that was a substantial decrease in the return on assets that the industry was, was showing. And if you go back over the last 20 years, 30 years, what you'd find is during times of of strength, the industry would have growing, increasing return on assets. And only during economic downturns would the return on assets start to slip and go, you know, move in the opposite direction. The problem is for retailers, starting in 2012, even though we were in strong economic times and we were coming out of a downturn, we were in the recovery, starting in 2012, we actually started to see a negative um, you know, uh, impact on return on assets. So we started seeing return on assets moving down all the way through 2017 as if the economy was actually not doing well. In fact, it was. And that sort of leads to the question of what happens to an industry that is operating in, in a relatively healthy economy, but they're showing signs of weakness when it actually gets weak. So I know that that's a lot of information about the research. It was pretty fascinating to go through it. And of course, it's more interesting to me now to look back on the research given where we're at today. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. Um, and uh, 
just to augment that, uh, one point you made, like you, you talked about, uh, the acceleration of digital through these, these recessions that you track, uh, that that's even more surprising because you kind of looked at a couple specific recessions and one of them was the dot-com bubble, right? And so <laughs> there you go, you know, man, did, uh, if people overvalue dot-coms, did they also sort of overvalue the utility of dot-coms? And so you, you might've expected digital shopping to decelerate, um, when, when a dot-com bubble threw us into a recession and even there you saw digital grow. Yeah. Interesting. That the way we looked at it was in, in, on a relative basis, because of course you saw, you know, like right in 2008, we actually saw, uh, you know, retail soften sort of overall, but when you looked at it, relatively speaking and said, okay, when someone is shopping retail, you know, um, which way are they shopping? So you have to look at it that way to understand the acceleration because the acceleration actually occurred during a period where it looked soft and it looked like the market was softening. But when you looked at it relative to brick and mortar, that's where you really see the acceleration. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So I read, I got, uh, thank you for, for uh, reminding me about that research. I read it when you published it, but then uh, it was um, uh, prescient to kind of reread it right now. Um, And my big takeaway uh, is like that there's demonstrable evidence that these uh, recession events exacerbate bifurcation, right? Both of businesses. It seems like there's a chunk of businesses that do better in the recession than other businesses, that there's a, a gap that opens up. And also, uh, as you alluded to recently, like it exacerbates bifurcation of consumers. And you, you talked about the the gap in uh, um, real earnings, but you in your report, you also talked like, literally life expectancy, there's a big gap between affluent consumers and non-affluent consumers. Um, yeah, the, the idea of economic bifurcation is so prevalent when you really start to use that as a lens. Uh, and you'll hear me talk about this on every one of our research reports because it just constantly comes back up, is the whole market wants to be fixated on age you know, as a driver of behaviors. But over and over again, what we find is it's this it's the economics and this economic bifurcation that dramatically um, is more important to how consumers are behaving than age is. So what I say is people behave like their income, not like their age. And I've got so many data points, so many different lenses that we've used to prove that time and time again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Amen on that. Um, I I feel like the age was actually never that. never correlated that well, but it just, that was the attribute we knew about our audiences. Right. And so like, that was the attribute that everyone used. But, um, uh, so when I look at your research and I say, Hey, what can a business leader that's contemplating, like, you know, all the, uh, the current events, you know, there's, there's a a very real chance that throws us into a recession or at least a recession like economy. Um, what, what are some takeaways um, for how best to um, sort of be one of the winners in that bi- bifurcation. Um, and I, I, there are a couple of things that jumped out at me, um, but like, do you have sort of a top level for like, w- like what's the general advice you, you give to someone about thinking about the kind of investments they should make and the, the, the kind of financial moves they should be making like when they find themselves in a recession? Yeah, well, actually the advice is better about how to think about it before the recession, uh, think about it before you find yourself in, in really difficult times. Um, 
what, what we're finding increasing is you can't fall back on the old playbook, you know, compressing vendors, cutting SGNA, reducing headcount, peeling back store labor, and just going promotional. If you look back at who the winners and losers were coming out of both of the, the previous recessions, um, what you find out was those are not the playbooks that, that led to a healthy, successful outcome. What we found was it, for those retailers, they increasingly really focused on why they matter. Um, and I know it's an easy thing to say, but but what you find is is that I, I must I would say it's like being um, you know knowing what it is that your consumers really value about you, and then being unapologetic about investing into that. So if you're an off-price retailer, you know know that, and then invest into that. Uh, if you're you know if your uh, product is supreme, then know that and invest into that. Uh, and what we found is that. During these times, and you're falling back on the old playbook, we, we, we you know, our retailers in the marketplace, consumer products companies, you know, oftentimes focus on the playbook and they lose sight of that. But we also said build a war chest to invest into growth because it's during these times that those companies that found themselves, uh, you know, investing into the structural change that's happening during the downturn are the ones that are best positioned for what's about to occur coming out. Now, if you find yourself in the recession and you haven't invested into the war chest that allows you to invest into that growth, you really find yourself in difficult position because you can begin to see the market, uh, you know, come back together, get healthy, and start to thrive again. But you haven't, uh, you you don't you don't have the resources that allow you to, you know, aggressively invest into that. We also know that embracing technology automation to increase your leverage during the times of growth. And then looking outside your four walls to embrace new partnerships. Those are the things that really came out when we looked at who won and who approached, you know, the growth coming out of downturns differently as opposed to the old old playbook. I, I, I love this quote that, that um, Benjamin Franklin um, had. He said, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. And that's why we wrote the, that's why we did the research because, you know, eight months ago was the time when we were, you know, trying to get our clients to sort of recognize that the risk was increasing and that they really needed to, you know, begin to, to take it seriously and begin to prepare. Yeah. Uh, it, I, I think that's fascinating. And that, uh, I had an early uh, mentor who, who uh, was a very, very successful retailer, Wayne Heising, uh, and he used to constantly hark on this philosophy that, um, uh, in economically good times, that's exactly when you should most be focusing on cost reduction and cost controls. And in economic down times, uh, that's exactly when you should be investing because your your uh, capital actually works harder and gives you a higher return um, in those economically distressed times than it does when everybody is pretty flush. Yeah, I think that's uh, that, that's that's easy to say. It's really hard. For, yeah, I always like to put my practice. Like as a yeah. consultant, it's easy for me to say, "Here's what you need to do." Um, but I always try and put my practical hat on and recognize how difficult that really is to do. That said, when you look at who the winners and losers were coming out of the previous recessions, that's exactly what they did. Yeah, I briefly tried to learn how to dry, uh, ride a jet ski once, and uh, um, counterintuitively, when you're about to fall off the jet ski and it's unstable. Uh, the correct thing to do is give it more gas and go faster because that's what makes you stable. <laughs> but right, it's not right. what your brain wants to do. <laughs> yeah, that's a great analogy. Um, well, uh, that is awesome. One last question on um, sort of learnings from recessions. Do you have any point of view, like 
so you've, you've got a consumer, they go through a recession, you know, consumer confidence goes down, um, you know, eventually those recessions end. Um, do like we tend to see consumers behaviors rebound and do they act exactly like they did before the rebound or do these recessions tend to have sort of a hangover effect on consumer behavior, even when the economy turns around? Yeah. No, without a doubt, our research tells us that the consumer adopts new behaviors during the downtimes that they maintain uh, coming up. So I, I would expect a lot of the behaviors, a lot of the things we see going on even today with people adopting new behaviors, um, that, that those are, are going to accelerate. Those are going to become prominent, and I don't expect those to fully bounce back. I, I would expect some behaviors to, you know, to bounce back somewhat. Um, however, I think predominantly I'd say that people are, are learning new behaviors as they do. They stick with those new behaviors. Very cool. Hopefully, uh, on-demand car wash is one of those behaviors. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, now that we have all that kind of downer recession pandemic talk behind us, let's dig into the new research. Uh, Casey, what's the high level of how you guys came up with this and, and what you're revealing on the show tonight? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, you know, here we are, it's 2020. Um, and we, you know, the number one request we're getting from our clients is, you know, tell us about the future of the industry. Tell us about the future of retail or we get, you know, the future of the store. And of course, that seems to be a topic that <laughs> that that is hot with our clients, but it's also, you know, very well published out there. So we, we looked at it and just said, okay, you know, how would we think about it? How would we approach that topic and how do we do it in a different way than, than maybe, you know, has already been done? And that's really what, what got us to dig into this, this research that you know, that we call Retail and Consumer Products 2020. Got it. And uh, you were kind enough to give us a little bit of a sneak preview of, of the research. Uh, and I have to say, I really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to when you publish the final version. Um, in there, you, you kind of talk about seven trends, uh, you know, of, of what this Retail 2020 looks like. Um, I thought they were all really good. So maybe give us a high-level overview. And then Jason and I want to tease apart a couple of them. Yeah, before I do that, let me give you a little um, uh, of the segue that gets us to the seven trends. Because, you know, in, in the research, one of the things we did before we started our own research is went back and said, um, you know, how good is the industry at, at this idea of predicting the future? So we went back and spent time over the last 20 years uh, of research just trying to assess, um, you know, how good are we as an industry? Uh, and there's great, you know, publications, a lot of great, you know, commentary that's out there. But what you find when you summarize it all together is we're really not that good as an industry at um, professing the future. And then the question is, well, okay, well, if we're not that good as an industry, we haven't been that good at it for 20 years. What makes us think that, you know, that we at Deloitte and the, the way we're going to research this is any different? And it's really the findings that relate to kind of that backwards view that gets us to how to think about this problem differently. And the way I like to call it is let's move away from prophecy and let's actually get practical, okay? Because what you'll discover is most of the, the future of pieces are just prophetic. There's just people sort of imagining pie in the sky what the future will be like. And, and the saving grace, by the way, generally is they never tell us when the future will be here. So it's potential that all those predictions they make will 
you know, will be true at some point. Uh, however, the vast majority of the predictions that have been made over the last 20 years, actually, as we sit here today, are not true. Okay, so if, if prophesizing doesn't work, then if I look back in history, how would I have known where we would have ended up as an industry? And the interesting part is it's actually there. It's actually there in the data. If we're actually paying attention to what's going on in the data, we can actually play out trends that lead us to where we're at today. So that's the segue, and that's sort of the, the approach that we said, okay, so if we're not going to prophesize about the future, let's go look at the data. And so we looked at our, you know, we've got a group that we call our Center for Consumer Insights that has phenomenal data, uh, a lot of different sources of traffic and sales and consumer behaviors, et cetera. And we said, well, what's the data tell us about the future? And that's where, through working with the Center for Consumer Insights, we came up with the seven trends that we see that are broadly shaping the future of retail and consumer products. Now, by the way, you, you got to recognize that retail and consumer products is a really broad industry set, everything from apparel, fashion, luxury goods to grocery, uh, you know, consumer products, staples, et cetera. So these are really broad you know, in their a, uh, uh, application. But I'll, I'll go through what those seven are that, that the data tell us. The first one is commoditization and premiumization of product. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about what's going on there. But we also have digital success is growing even more elusive. That's the second trend. The third trend pertains to physical retail. And the third trend is smaller and closer. And I'll talk about the data that we've got there as well. Uh, the next trend is new models become material. And the interesting part here is not when I say new models, things like rental, uh, things like um, resale, you know, in the apparel world or or, um, you know, ghost kitchens in the restaurant uh, industry. Those sorts of things are all new models. And in and of themselves, they're not that interesting um, in terms of size or scale. But when you put all the new models together, they actually start to become material in terms of how they're eating into uh, share. The next trend we identified was convenience as the new battleground. So again, I, I talked earlier about the idea in the industry that says everything's experiential. And we'd actually say convenience as an element of the human experience in particular is what's driving the new battleground. Uh, the next trend is health and sustainability for some. And we talked about that, Jason. The bifurcation is that when you dig into health and sustainability, it actually is not a broadly applicable trend. It's actually really applicable the higher income you go, the lower income you go, uh, you actually find reverse trends in play. And then the last point is it builds upon research we had done previously, and it's fragmentation and consolidation of market share. We actually see some really interesting divergence happening in terms of how market share is, is consolidating where it once was fragmenting or fragmenting where it once was consolidating. So those are, those are the big seven forces that we go deep on and use data to, to support how those are shaping the future. Uh, that's awesome. And I, uh, let's jump into a couple of those. Uh, I do, I do want to say, um, I suspect you're being slightly kind because you, you talked about this, this ocean of, uh, retail prophecies and how, you know, most of them are just kind of, uh, prophecies or opinions. Um, and, uh, I, I, I suspect there is a huge chunk of those. In fact, I just did a Google search on uh, future of retail and there's, 
seven million two hundred thousand results. <laughs> um, and 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 I had a team that actually had to go through those seven million two hundred results, and and we've got them all categorized, and we've gone through them. So we really stared at them and said, uh, you know. What, what are they telling us? And in our research paper, we really go deep into it so that you can sort of see what the flaw is that's, that's behind a lot of the approach to sort of thinking about the future. Yeah. And so to your team, if they're listening, I'd like to apologize for the 500 of them that were me. Um, <laughs> but I think there's another big chunk of prophecies in there, um, which are the self-serving ones, right? Which is like the, the computer speech vendor predicting that the future of retail is computer speech. That's right. That's right. Oh. There's there's plenty of those, and some of those are commissioned. So they're they're commissioned by you know a uh, vendor, you know, by someone that does research. But you, when you dig into them, you can go, okay, th this makes sense. You've you've commissioned this study. Yeah. Uh, so moving on from the 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 ground setting to the sort of seven trends that you guys noticed that were sort of grounded in your um, your uh, co consumer data set. Uh, what the first one that jumped out to me is actually the first one on your list because um, it's a topic I, I talk a lot about, but uh, that's the commoditization and premiumization, which I, I feel like I've said that before, but I never thought it was an official word until I saw Deloitte use it. <laughs> that's right. Now you can use it officially. Yeah, you know, when you look at, 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 at products in particular and you look at what's going on there, you know, you certainly see this again. You'll hear me talk a lot about reduction in barriers to entry, that, that consumers have access to technology that gives them visibility in a way, you know, that, that they didn't previously have. And that it also gives, um, you know, anybody selling a product, they've got avenues to you. So, you know, if you're buying a particular brand of something like mac and cheese, you've literally got thousands of options to buy that very same product. And what happens when that occurs, when you, uh, you know, we've got, you know, slowly you've got margins that are being eaten into as one after another tries to outprice, you know, the other. So we've got a lot of great research about how, uh, you know, margins on, on products are being eaten away and that's the commoditization. Um, at the same time, you have this explosion of choice. So you, if you looked at a traditional grocery store and you looked at 1990, they'd have you know, roughly 7,000 items would be available in a grocery store. In 2018, it's 35,000 items. So just an explosion you know, of options that the consumer has available to them. At the same time, we've seen this growth of private label. Uh, in fact, from 2015 to 2019, there's been a considerable, you know, growth with, uh, you know, with retailers who are coming out with their own private label product, um, growing from about 130 billion to about 143 billion over a, a period of about four years. Uh, and at the same time that we've got private label happening, we've got a premiumization of private label. So in 2016, of that private label product, about 15% of those products or the dollar amount would have, uh, you know, been categorized as a premium uh, private label product and go to 2019 and it's grown to about 18%. So not only do we have private label, which was once really a value play, we've now got private label that's now more of a, a premium play. So really this opportunity for differentiation really becomes, you know, the the, the, the critical component to think about in a world that's both commoditizing and premium, I, I guess I can't say premiumizing, unless I just made up yet a new You word. can say it. You did. 
Okay. Sure. All right, thank you. Jason said Jason says I could. Hashtag premiumizing. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, I, I kind of, you know, out of those seven, I wanted to dig in on convenience as the new battleground. So uh, tell us more about what, what you guys saw there as you looked at the data. Yeah, well, first of all, when we when we talk to consumers um, and you find out why they shop, where they shop, what we find is the convenience is the number one reason a consumer selects a particular retailer. So you have to start there. And by the way, there's nothing you know new about that. That's not a new age consumer sort of thing. In fact, we, as we've studied this "what matters most" idea, you know, over the last ten years, we've found that convenience continually, you know, comes in first as the most important thing. So you start there. Second of all, then we said, okay, well, let's go look at where the growth is in the industry. And what we did is we took, uh, you know, a look at categories where convenience or, or particular retailers where convenience is a major or a primary element of the value proposition. And when you categorize that way, we find about 67% of retail growth from 2016 to 2019 comes from retailers that, that prioritize uh, convenience as part of their value proposition. In addition to that, you can certainly see a lot of the growth that's happening, let's say, with mass retailers, uh, their initiatives that they're undertaking, like curbside uh, or delivery, things like that, that also relate to convenience. And, of course, grocery in particular is the most desired area for convenience. But we also see things like this. Like What's so fascinating about the future of predictions is there's things occurring in the industry that nobody was predicting. So, for example, we see uh, you know, solid, healthy growth in convenience stores. And nobody's, nobody in, you know, in any of the predictions did we see someone talking about the rise of, of convenience stores as an important you know, attribute or element in the marketplace. So across the board, we see a lot of different ways you can look at it. And what we see is convenience uh, you know, is really becoming this new competitive battleground, you know, much more so than, say, experience, um, like entertainment sort of elements that you might bring into the store. Yeah, that was super fascinating. Um, it's it's funny to me because I sometimes wonder like if convenience is uh, even an unfortunate word to describe a category of store these days because there often are so many more convenient ways to uh, to get a product than than uh, those convenience stores, and yet they continue to thrive and grow. Um, this idea of convenience shows up in, in, in like when we looked at what's really going on with physical retail, it shows up very prominent there as well. Yeah. Uh, another one of the trends that got me excited uh, because uh, embedded in this trend, you talk about uh, one of my favorite um, sawhorses, uh, what I call the mobile gap is this like shift to mobile devices, uh, but, but uh, AOV and conversion rate are not um, – uh, equivalent on mobile devices to what they were on desktop. So, but uh, your macro trend was digital success grows elusive, and uh, uh, explain a little bit uh, what you mean to our to our listeners about that. Yeah, yeah. First of all, certainly we know that digital continues to drive a significant amount of the, uh, of growth in the marketplace. It's, it's roughly driving fifty percent of of the growth just last year. Uh, you know, in, in retail, and it's growing at about 14.9%, sort of depending on what, you know, what source you look at. When we look at, um, uh, you know, the U.S. figures that come from the government, um, you know, we're seeing about 14.9% growth rate. However, uh, we're seeing this dramatic shift 
to mobile. So now mobile represents about 45% of online sales, and that's growing fast. Uh, you know, mobile sales grew at about 36% CAGR since 2014 versus only 6% for other digital channels. So you've seen this shift occur. But there's a problem when that shift occurs, and you mentioned it, and it's that the conversion rate on mobile is actually dramatically lower than the conversion rate on desktop, dropping from about 4% on average down to about 1.7% on average. At the same time, the average order value is dropping from about 127 down to 86%. So as you're, as you know, many retailers and many consumer products companies are paying for traffic to show up at digital, that that conversion is converting to dollars at a slower rate, and the amount of dollars that it's converting are actually lower. So that's problem number one that makes digital success more uh, more elusive. However, when you then add to it this idea about ad spending, because we're certainly seeing you know an increase spend that shift is happening towards digital advertising. And when you look at the increase on digital advertising or advertising overall, because by the way, as you shift to digital advertising, we're actually not seeing a commensurate decrease in traditional advertising, which means overall advertising is actually increasing at a, a fairly good clip um, when retail sales themselves are not you know, increasing at the same rate. At the same time, the cost for digital spend or the digital advertising is increasing and digital ad spending per person is going up. Uh, again, meanwhile, TV is staying uh, you know, roughly the same if, if not increasing slightly. So that sets up a world where we have to pay for traffic, right? We're, we're buying traffic effectively you know, as we're investing in different uh, you know, traffic programs. That traffic is showing up and is converting at a lower rate. Driving that traffic through advertising is more expensive than ever. And then on top of that, shipping rates uh, you know, have in, in increased. So from 2010 to 2020, ground shipping has increased 76% and air 80%. So not only, uh, not only is it like advertising, but it's, it's fulfillment as well. And of course, uh, wages for warehouse workers have also gone up uh, you know, considerably. All those things put together, those trends lead us to believe that going forward, of course, digital is an important uh, you know, aspect of growth, but that growth is becoming either less and less profitable, or in some cases, it's got a deteriorating effect on, on margins for, for major retailers. So that's only going to become more of a problem as we move forward. Yeah, I liked all of that, except the part where you dissed on uh, advertising, because I think that pays my salary. <laughs> I, I, I take back anything that pays Jason's salary. No, 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 no. But like, just, I mean, to, to kind of highlight how real it is, like in your, in your data set, you, you show in like 2011, um, brands were spending considerably more on television than digital. And uh, in 2017, the television spending was about the same, but now uh, the spend on digital was much higher than the television spend. So it's uh, that that uh, inflection point has has really been passed. Um, and yet, all the digital advertising, and I say this as a digital advertiser, still kind of sucks. Like I'm super disappointed with all the events this week that we like. You haven't seen more more advertisers like curtail their advertising for what is at the moment an irrelevant product or service. Um, but I digress. Uh, yeah, no, no, it's, it's a good point. I mean, advertising is becoming, you know, less effective, more expensive. Yeah. Uh, 
So that one, that's just going to depress me. So I don't want to spend too much time on that. Uh, I do want to try to squeeze one more in because uh, this was fascinating to me. Uh, the seventh trend, fragmentation and consolidation. And tell our listeners what, what that meant. Yeah, um, if you follow the research that we do out of the the industry sector, you'll you'll know this term because several years back we were trying to assess what the heck disruption meant. Everybody was saying it, but we didn't know how to measure it. We didn't know, um, you know, uh, there's got to be if if it's occurring, there's got to be a way to understand what it is and to quantify it and then measure is it decreasing or increasing or you know. What's going on with it? And we came up with a way to think about it. You can argue that this is the right way, but this is how we came up with a way to think about it. When an industry is being disrupted, uh, you know, new entrants are coming in, uh, and in doing so, they're disrupting the market share. Most likely, they're stealing market share where you've got the losers or those that, you know, uh, you've, got, <laughs> you've got the companies that are donating market share and you've got new entrants that have shown up with a new, better mousetrap, better offering, and they're stealing market share. So we would assume that in a market that's being disrupted, you would have increased, um, you know, turnover of market share. Um, so we'd be, able to, we'd be able to understand that by studying what was going on with market share. You know, and in that uh, came the first term. I, I I called it turnover, but it's volatility. You know how volatile the market share is for an industry is a measurement that we came up with on how to study disruption. And then once you study whether or not it's volatile, the next question is: Is it volatile because it's fragmenting, or is it volatile because it's consolidating? And you know, as as we've studied that, what we saw, you know, it was roughly 2016 when we studied it the first time for retail in particular. What we found was the volatility was increasing as new smaller players came into the market. And not only that, but fragmentation is what was driving that volatility. So now you fast forward, and we looked at it again to say what's going on now in retail. What we found was the opposite. And this is really sort of interesting to think about: is that volatility of market share in retail. Is actually going down uh, over from 2016 to 2019. And meanwhile, what we saw was it was concentration that was driving that volatility. So in other words, the big players were getting bigger uh, as opposed to the small players were stealing enough market share to, you know, stealing it from the big players, which we saw occurring roughly in 2016. So it's interesting just to think about how the dynamics of competition have changed and therefore how the nature of whatever disruption we see is starting to change. Now, if you jump over, because we studied it also as it pertains to packaged goods, and we actually saw the exact opposite occurring. What we really saw uh, uh, for packaged food companies is the fragment. And by the way, with packaged foods, you have to look at it by brand, not by aggregate company, because of course, a, a, a big, um, you know, uh, a branded company will have many, many brands that they'll hold. So we actually had to break it down and say, let's look at this by brand level. And when you look at it by brand level, what you find is the smaller brands are really what are driving the uh, volatility. And you see dramatic fragmentation happening in the packaged food area. So just ways for us to think about disruption and to understand the dynamics of competition and how that's changing. And therefore, you know, what, what do we think may be, you know, shaping the future? Yeah. And like to sort of um, sum that up, like super briefly. Uh, so retailer power is concentrating into a few big players and CPG power is getting fragmented into 
more entrants. And so like, obviously there's a shift in leverage in the whole retailer brand dynamic there when that happens. So that's uh, an interesting thing to think about um, when, when, you know, both, both kinds of companies are plotting their future. Yeah. And when you begin to put that together with, we talked earlier about premiumization, uh, you know, a product and, and, uh, and and private label, all of that plays together to think about how the consumer is shaping their view of what they want to buy and where they want to buy it. Very cool. Um, so in the paper, you you go into quite a bit of depth on these trends and there's some really good data in there. Um, and then you kind of then springboard forward and you say, well, let's let's kind of look forward and see if you, you know, what, what you should be doing. Uh, maybe give us some highlights of, of that forward looking kind of part. Yeah, sure thing. Um, you know, and it's it's sort of difficult to to, to, to lay out well, I mean, one of the things that comes out of this, it's difficult to say the future of the industry is X, because what history would tell us is that the future, you know, plays itself out differently for different companies in different segments, for different customers selling different products. So there is no no singular future. And in fact, as, as much as one company zigs and has success, that actually creates opportunity for another company to zag and have success. So, you know, as one company finds that online retail works, another company finds that physical discount retail works. And they're, they're, they're not at all the same future. Uh, however, they do certainly coexist. And that's really important to sort of think about, um, you know, how you think about, you know, your company, uh, how you think about setting strategy. What we say is like, think about opportunity through the lens of data. You know, for every data point that tells us something's occurring, you got to look at the converse and say, is opportunity being created on the backsides of this? You know, for like, like we talk about health and wellness, you know, we can say, oh, man, the, the market is being driven by health and wellness. And you go, it is for certain consumers, but there's opportunity for for other consumers who maybe are in economic constraints and maybe don't have the luxury of uh you know, buying the high-end health and wellness product. Maybe they still care, but maybe they're under different constraints. Um, so what we try and do is we help our clients sort of think about how do you scenario plan around this? How do we use our, you know, Center for Consumer Insights to really think deeply about your consumer and identify where there's pockets of opportunity? You know, and generally I'd say, look, you can read the, the predictions about the future that are that are prophecies and, you know, read them as as input, uh, but I certainly wouldn't be, you know, in, in, I, I certainly wouldn't be encouraging my clients to make big, broad bets, you know, based on prophecy. What I'd be saying is let's make bets, you know, based on under, a deep understanding of our consumer, a deep understanding of what opportunities will exist given the, the changing competitive landscape. But if you are going to make future bets based on prophecy, they should be mine. <laughs> they should be Jason's, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, well, I feel like that's the perfect place to leave it because we have once again used up all our allotted time. Uh, but Casey, this is super fascinating. Thanks so much for sharing the research. And uh, I know you're going to figure out in the weeks to come uh, where this gets published and we'll make sure listeners know how to find it. Um, but thank you very much for your time tonight. Oh, as always, thank you guys for allowing me to uh, share what we've been up to. Casey, if folks want to find you online, what uh, are you a are you Snapchatting with uh, clients, or what's your preferred way to, <laughs> to get in touch with everybody? So, of course, uh, you can find me uh, Casey Lobaugh. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I also am at 
K-L-O-B-A-U-G-H on Twitter, where we publish a lot of our research and our findings. We do a lot of sneak peeks uh, at what we're up to uh, there as well. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us. And until next time, happy commercing. All right. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 